everything's true. God's an astronaut. Oz is over the rainbow. The Midian's where the monsters live. Here's a Japanese sandman Sneaking on with a tune Just an old second handman He'll buy your old days from you He will take every sorrow Of the day that is through And he'll bring you tomorrow Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Well, it's been a busy week. We've been to Dragon Meat. We have, and I'm still recovering. This is slightly old news, but you know, what the hell? I was going to say, that that one day felt more like the whole weekend. Yeah, Mm. but that that was something to do with getting up at three o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. Minor problem. (laughs) What time did you guys leave home? It was must have been about half five six. What time did you about. get there? About eight. All right, yeah, for, okay. for, just in time for the ten o'clock start. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. is one for timekeeping, aren't you? And for being like, I know, don't there like being, time. Yeah, I don't, don't like being late. late. Good man. <laughs> so uh, we'll have put out the um, bonus episode, the seminar that we did. That was quite fun. Uh, what you yeah. won't be able to hear. Well, you will be able to hear, but you won't be able to, you know, you you weren't there perhaps to see it, was that uh, Steve Dempsey. Yes, raining fish upon us. I'm still having flashbacks to that sort of fishy attack. I'm still picking fish out of my beard. <laughs> I was like trying to focus because I was nominally kind of chairman. And uh, so I was, I was looking at the sheet of, of notes that Scott had given me and I was trying to sort of think. And then these, these things kept hitting me on the chest. And I was like, what the hell is going on? But, I, you know, I just focused and tried to block it out. And then I realised that they were, well, not plastic fish, but kind of chewy, sweet fish. Yeah, jellyfish. Jellyfish. Mm, juicy, not juicy jellyfish. Fish. No. They weren't throwing, like, man of war or whatever. <laughs> there was okay. still some stuck in the end of my shoe, at the bottom of my shoe after I was leaving that. I had that too. <laughs> yeah. But they were tasty. Mm, well, not not fish. the ones on Matt's shoes, but yeah. We won't talk too much about our seminar because, well, as Paul said a moment ago, we're actually releasing that as a special episode. But we did go to a few other seminars, and one particular highlight was the Chaosium seminar. Yeah, the big one. Mm, lots of news there. One of the big bits of news was the fact that Chaosium is going to be adopting new standard templates, Mm. uh, colour templates for their new book releases, and improved artwork. Basically, since the Moon Design takeover, uh, they've adopted some of Moon Design's graphic design techniques. And, yeah, if you've seen any of the Moon Design books, you know that they're pretty, pretty things. And this is going to extend to the Call of Cthulhu line now. Yeah, they were they were very much of the opinion that there'd been a divide in quality between the material that's put out by Chaosium traditionally, and the um, the material that was put out by the licensees, such as the particularly they uh, they mentioned the French and German licensees in particular, saying that they are visually a lot nicer books, so they're going to redress the balance, as they put it. Also, there was the news that there's going to be a new distribution centre for Chaosium uh, stuff based in Europe, which is going to help an awful lot with shipping costs. Yes, tell me about it. No hundred dollars a box now. (laughs) Yeah, that's going to be fantastic, be able to get Chaosium stuff directly from Chaosium at a reasonable price, or at least reasonable shipping price. Hmm. But the big news 
was, uh, well, big news for us at least, is that the, the many-tentacled cat is out of the bag. Uh-huh. Yeah, so th- which one? <laughs> well, you know, all these really a roulette episodes we've been doing. Oh, the, yeah. the big spreadsheet that we've kind of alluded to uh, is a bit of Matt's work, and that's coming out as the spell compendium. Yeah, the great grimoire of the Cthulhu mythos, I think Mike, uh, Mike called it. So, yeah, I mean, this is going to be a book with hundreds of spells in it, mm-hmm. uh, updated to 7th edition, so you've got things like deeper versions of spells and stuff like that for a number of them, uh, new artwork, new layout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I, yeah, I believe uh, Mike was saying that there's going to be NPCs in there. Yes, uh, there you know, example, magicians and oh, sorcerers right, right. of the mythos. Essays on how to use magic as well. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a, a pretty big book. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, the- and also, it's the fact that, you know, certainly there were spells excised from 7th edition, and some people have complained about that. Have they? Yes, one or two. <laughs> I, so, I can't believe that. <laughs> people complain? What? So if you get this book as well, I mean, that will not only restore the balance of the, the spells that were removed from the core book, but give you hundreds more to play with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, he quoted over 500 made it through the cut. I mean, he's, he specified, Mike specified, that it wasn't going to be every spell that had ever been released, because a lot of them are very, very specific to individual scenarios, or if it's a Japan book, cut that bit out. <laughs> but, um, but, but a lot of them are reworkings of, you know, at least almost duplicates of the same idea, just with slightly different details. Oh, yeah, the class, classic example that was in there, the temporal vortex appeared in Fearful Passages, and then it's re, um, had virtually no mechanics at all, and then Time Gate pretty much covers everything that the temporal vortex describes that it covers. So you'll have a single spell entry that will have alternate names that correspond with the older names of other published spells that fit the same description. But the big question, of course, is how many different versions of Attract Fish are there? Two. Two? Only two? Yep, there's only two. First appeared in Escape from Innsmouth, then went through to, to Escape from Innsmouth 2nd edition, but was the same um, mechanics and still called Attract Fish. And then there's Mike's version of Call Forth the Abundance of the Sea, which was in my scenario in Nameless Horrors. <laughs> and is there a Attract Lobster as well? Uh... That I think got taken out of the spell uh, of the compendium, but there was a lobster spell, charm lobster. I think it was what <laughs> charm lobster? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Again, it's also from Escape from Innsmouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry if charm lobster's not in there. I'm not buying this. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think it maybe got wrapped in with bi- bind animal or various other similar type spells because there's a lot of bind animals um, am- animal related spells. But yeah, there's this voice after six months of looking through every book, it's kind of been imprinted on my on my memory. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's time for Lovecraftian word of the um um week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And our word of the week this week is inhuman. Generally lacking kindness, being cruel, generally an emotionless bastard, or just generally being a horrible person. Technically not being human. That's far too technical. Anyone would think that was a dictionary, de- dictionary definition. <laughs> also not suitable for, um, for human needs. Not suited for human needs. So 
It could be an, an inhuman... I call it decaf. <laughs> inhuman coffee. Yes. <laughs> inhuman treatment? No, that's that's cruel and... Um... Unusual, which also relates to a description of inhuman. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever encountered inhuman used in that, that, that form, but... Well, not that I can remember anyway. It does also relate to not of normal human character, form, etc., Yes. Hmm. So it gets 23 uses in Lovecraft's fiction. Yeah, which again is is quite a lot compared to some of the other words we've been through. I mean, this, again, may not be a typically Lovecraftian word. It's certainly not as grandiose as a lot of the other ones we've gone through, but it's, I think it's something that touches very much on uh, a lot of Lovecraft's themes. The fact that you know you've got a lot of things which you know have got human aspect, uh, but are fundamentally inhuman, or alternatively are just so far from being human that they are the you know the very definition, the very essence of inhuman. Yeah, I think the distance from human, you know, when we compare it with a lot of the traditional horrors of the gothic horrors of, of vampires and uh, werewolves and uh, and mummies and so on, they're all much more of a human uh, kind. Yes, they're all of human origin, yeah. at least. From the case of Charles Dexter Ward, weird and menacing in that abyss of antique blasphemy rang his voice, its accents keyed to a droning sing-song either through the spell of the past and the unknown, or through the hellish example of that dull, godless wail from the pits whose inhuman cadences rose and fell rhythmically in the distance through the stench and the darkness. And from the shadow over Innsmouth, and yet I saw them in a limitless stream, Flopping, hopping, croaking, bleating, surging inhumanly through the spectral moonlight in a grotesque, malignant saraband of fantastic nightmare. And from Imprisoned with the Pharaohs. Down limitless reaches of sunless pavement, a spark of light flickered in the malodorous wind. And I drew behind the enormous circumference of a cyclopic column that I might escape for a while the horror that was stalking million-footed toward me through the gigantic hyperstyles of inhuman dread and phobic antiquity. And now, moving into our main topic, our discussion of Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions. So we're going to use our usual format of talking about the films with, uh, without spoilers and then moving on to a second section with spoilers. And we'll try to put a suitably obnoxious sound in as a warning in between the two sections. Something much like that. Well, Zoidberg. <laughs> but why have we selected these two films as a double bill? Because their director is a really cool guy. <laughs> yes, well, obviously, yep, they are both by Clive Barker. I guess, you know, everyone, you know, when they think of Clive Barker's films career, uh, probably thinks of Hellraiser. I think that's the first one that's going to jump to mind. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Bit of but, a shame. It's one of the weaker ones. Really? Oh, I don't know. We'll maybe talk a bit more about that after we've talked about these films. Yeah, I'd like to watch it again, actually. Yeah. But, uh, long time since I've seen it. Yeah, I think it's a, a very strong film, a very imaginative film, but quite a flawed one, too. Yeah, these two are the two that you know, perhaps people talk about a bit less. They're also 
films that have, you know, at least in one case, fairly recently been reissued in a director's cut format, which makes this a very good time to talk about them. I, Nightbreed, you will know, go into a bit more detail about this later, but uh, yeah, until recently it was only available in a fairly heavily cut format, in a, a fairly butchered format. I remember seeing it on TV late night one time, yeah, very, very, very short. But now the director's cut's out, it's, you know, it's something of a resurrected film, appropriately enough. <laughs> and also, yeah, both of them, I think, are ripe with inspiration for gaming. But first, a quick look at Clive Barker. So I didn't realise Clive Barker is a Liverpudlian. He's made the leap from writing novels to directing films. Yeah, I mean, he moved over to the US you know, many, many years ago as a result of his film career and, and has been there ever since. But his film career didn't really take off the way it seemed like it was going to at first. He made uh, you know, a, a number of films, the ones we're talking about tonight and Hellraiser, as we mentioned before, and I mean, they were all moderately successful. But, you know, uh, I, I don't think any of them really kind of earned a lot of money. And, you know, perhaps as a result, he hasn't actually directed a film since 1995. So how did he go into, well, I'm assuming in Hollywood, how did he go in with these books and direct them himself and not just have his books picked up by some, you know, uh, Hollywood director? Yeah, I mean, he had directed a couple of films before. He'd done his own independently financed, I believe, versions of his plays. He started out as a playwright, mm -hmm. uh, Salome and the Forbidden. Uh, but, yeah, it's certainly... I, I, I must admit, I don't know the story of how he came to direct Hell, Hellraiser. But that was his, his first feature film, or at least his first American feature film. I can understand why you'd want to do, uh, want to direct it though, because he does have a particular vision about how his uh, materials portrayed. I think Tom Clancy once said that giving your um, giving a book of yours over to a Hollywood developer is like giving your daughter over to a pimp. <laughs> so, I can understand yeah. wanting to, but you know, having the studio give you the money to do it—that's the whole other kettle of fish. Well, it's successful. And, and fish, yes. <laughs> yes, all the look of horror on your face as you stumbled <laughs> that over that. <laughs> uh, yeah, another 50 pence in the fish jar. Yeah. <laughs> fish bowl. Blub, blub. <laughs> but, I mean, you talk about, you know, him having a particular vision and so on. I, I still maintain that the best film that's been made for Barker's story wasn't actually made by him, and that's Candyman. Oh, yeah. yeah. Made by Bernard Rose. Um, mm. I, I, I think that is, you know, in terms of execution, far superior to anything Barker himself did. But Barker's career was an unusual one. I, it still boggles me thinking back that this is a man who made the leap to the big time with collections of short stories. Mm. I, I remember, you know, as a... I, yeah, I was in my teens and living out in New York. And I remember reading an article in the press about, you know, this, this writer who was coming into prominence, uh, Clive Barker, with the Books of Blood, these three books, these three collections of short stories. And, yeah, I mean, they were groundbreaking. Uh, they were really well-written horror stories. But at the same time, they were collections of short stories. And I just cannot imagine that happening today. That was some really good branding, though, the Books of Blood. Oh, yeah. That, you know, it... it, it <laughs> 
it's a good sort of umbrella title for a collections of short stories and you know you can have one two three and so on if i remember right the tagline on them is that we're all a book of blood wherever we're opened we're read before long i mean barker was getting the kind of book deals you normally only really associate with people like stephen king you know he was yeah, became a big name back in the early 90s yeah oh late 80s even yeah he was hugely successful then mm. multi-book deals multi-million dollar deals and again, you know, it's, it, it's kind of hard to imagine that these days when, you know, horror fiction again seems to be such a niche once more. Mm-hmm. I told you everything I know. No, no. The monsters. N- Nightbreed. Can they die? What harm they ever done to you? Can they die? Let's begin with our spoiler-free look at Nightbreed. The first film we're going to talk about is Nightbreed, which is based on Clive Barker's own novel, Cabal, which was put out in 1988, a couple of years before this film. But this was the second film that Barker was let loose to direct after uh, the, the success of Hellraiser. But the studio seemed to have a few problems with it, and there, there was certainly a lot of interference, and the version of it that ended up being put out was not quite what Barker wanted. It was quite badly butchered. The, the version that came out was 102 minutes long, and that was the only version that we saw until a couple of years ago, when, what was it, Shout Factory decided that they were going to put together what became known as the Cabal Cut. Now, the Cabal Cut was a, a version of the film that restored all of the cut footage. Uh, and it's not just, you know, what ended up going to the director's cut, but it was absolutely everything, including a lot of stuff that, you know, quite frankly, should have been cut just for pacing purposes. Mm. And as a result, the film was 155 minutes long. The footage that was put in, it hadn't been given much in the way of processing, so it was a very rough cut and, you know, quite jarring in places. And, yeah, it was a very badly paced film. What happened as a result of that was the creation of the director's cut, where they took a lot of this restored footage, polished it up a bit, and then cut it back together into what Barker actually originally wanted. And so this version that's out now is actually damn good. Yeah, there's even a quite almost touching afterscript right at the very end where Barker thanks the team for putting it back together in a happy reunion. So Nightbreed opens up with our protagonist... Aaron Boone. He's having visions of being chased by monsters. Some pretty cool monsters being chased through a kind of a a nightmarish landscape. Uh, And then he wakes up to the real horror that is, yet again, the 1980s fashions and that woman's dreadful hair (laughs) looming over him. But yes, Boone is a troubled young man. He's going to see a therapist by the name of Dr. Decker, uh, who is played uh, in a rare acting role by David Cronenberg. If that doesn't worry you from the start, what the hell does? Yeah, Cronenberg is fantastic in this. I mean, he delivers a very understated performance, quite subtle at times, very softly spoken. But he, he seems to, in interviews, come across as a fairly gentle, thoughtful man. And this comes across, you know, in the character. But at the same time, he manages to be utterly sinister. Oh, definitely. Sinister is the word. And Boone seems to be having these dreams and visions of um, people being murdered. And his therapist is kind of helping him through this, but his therapist comes to suggest that, you know, maybe Boone 
Maybe these aren't just dreams and visions. Maybe you are killing these people. <laughs> yeah, have some hallucinogenic drugs to help with your treatment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, that's, well, no, he prescribes some lithium, but the lithium uh, just somehow accidentally happens to be LSD. It's an easy mm. mistake to make. Yeah. Really. They both begin with L. Yeah. Yeah. Boone ends up wandering through uh, town, tripping balls, uh, having a psychotic break. And uh, ends up being hit by a truck. But he meets a really good guy with some uh, fantastic uh, thumb attachments. A chap called Narcisse, uh, who Boone quickly discovers also knows a Midian. And is obsessed, equally obsessed with getting there. The difference, though, between Narcisse and Boone is Narcisse seems to know where Midian is. And he also acts as a really good comic relief in the film as well. <laughs> Just some of the lines he comes up with are he fantastic. He does have some good lines, oh, yeah. He's, yeah, he's, he's my favourite character in the whole thing. But why does that not surprise me? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, at some point he decides that he's got to prove to Boone that he is really a monster. Mm-hmm. And that's when the thumb blades come out. And he's, he's got these two metal blades which he puts on his thumbs and he uses them... I think his goal is to cut his face off, but he actually ends up cutting off everything else other than his yeah. face. I've got yeah. to tell you, show you my true face. Yeah. This is what it really looks like, but everything else around it's wrong. <laughs> then the therapist turns up, some cops turn up, and at that point, Boone makes his getaway. He runs off down the corridor and he escapes. <laughs> Having been the directions of where Midian are, cut yep. scene, he's there! Yes, <laughs> no messing around. He's found Midian, it's an old graveyard, and he enters... One thing we did miss out uh, a little earlier, which does become quite important, is earlier on, before um, Boone has his break with reality, we do see a murder scene, one of these things that uh, that Boone is accused of doing, and we see an entire family getting slaughtered Mm. by a masked figure with a knife. And the mask is fantastic. With buttons for eyes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Buttons a zipper off centre. Yeah, yeah. And, and this sort of patchwork, you know, almost quilt-like face. Uh, mm. uh, yeah, again, yeah, a nicely sinister mask. Mm-hmm. Boone's now wandering around this this strange old graveyard. A huge uh, one in the middle of nowhere. It really is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, I, it? It really is a true necropolis, mm. a, a city of the dead. And there's no, ho- there's no holding back in this film. There's a couple of monsters. And yeah. he gets talking to them and he says, you know, I'm here to look at Midian. And they're like, you're not one of us. And yeah, they, they, well, they, they, they say that they can smell the innocence on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's saying, no, yeah, I'm a monster, I'm a killer. And he's like, no, you're meat. No, you're, you're, not. you're, you're meat. meat for the beast. Yeah. <laughs> so one of them takes a bite. And uh, this causes, this ends up with Boone fleeing the graveyard. But meantime, his friendly neighbourhood therapist is convinced that Boone is a killer and has led the police there. Yeah, and there is a, just this little scene where you know, the therapist, Dr Decker, walks up to Boone, there's police gunmen surrounding them, and he's trying to talk Boone down, and then just suddenly turns around to the police and says, He's got a gun! <laughs> Insert mucho daka 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 here. And yeah, about 15, 20 minutes into the film, our hero is shot dead. That was a quick film. Yeah. yeah. Dead as a doornail. Could this be the end? Come back later for the spoiler-ridden finale. Hey, it worked in Psycho. Why can't it work here? So David Cronenberg's character is called Philip K. Decker. (laughs) 
What's up with that? Yeah, and it's not just obviously a play on Philip K. Dick, but it's almost a play on Deckard as well. Yeah. The, the character he created for Do Androids Dream of Electric <laughs> Sheep and you know, obviously then Blade Runner. Do Psychos Dream of Electric Knives. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it, it seems to be a very obvious deliberate nod there. But I can't for the life of me actually sort of see any reason for that other than it's cool. No, just a cool uh, little reference, I think. Yeah, because there, there is nothing particularly Dickian about... Uh, well, I guess... Actually, I suppose there is a little bit in that it's a sort of a film about finding your own true identity and, you know, sort of layers of identity and, you know, whether we are or we aren't what we think we are. And so there, there is sort of an element to that, but it's not the same kind of mindfuck you associate with Dick. And he is quite an inhuman character, thinking of our <laughs> word of the week. I love one of the quotes that you've mentioned before, um, Scott, regarding the the anecdote regarding the producer that uh, <laughs> oh, took Barker to one side. Yeah, this I, this is probably apocryphal. I remember hearing it around the time that this that this film was being made. And, yeah, apparently there was one of the producers... I mean, this just shows the disconnect between what the studio were expecting and what Barker was making. That one of the producers took Barker to one side after watching the rushes for the day in some of the filming and said, yeah, good stuff, Clive, good stuff. But, yeah, you're going to have to be careful because, yeah, if, if you don't if you don't handle this right, the audience could come away thinking that the monsters are the good guys. And now the first spoiler-free part of our look at Lord of Illusions. This again is Barker adapting one of his own stories, this time a short story from Volume 6 of the Books of Blood called The Last Illusion. But matter of personal preference, I'm not saying I don't dislike Nightbreed, but I much prefer this one. It's, definitely, it's got something, it's got a very definite, different tone to it, so they are two quite, at least in my eyes, two very different films in that respect. Oh, absolutely, yeah, they've got very different feels to them. There was a bit more of the investigative side that, that you like, Matt, that, mm -hmm. that, that reminded me a little bit of The Ninth Gate in places. Oh, yes. <laughs> this introduces uh, the character of Harry Damore, or at least the short story did, but this is you know, his film debut and so far the only film appearance. But Harry Damore you know, appears in a number of Clive Barker stories. He's this private eye uh, with sort of a background in the occult who gets drawn into occult-type things. And he certainly turns up later in novels like The Great and Secret Show and Everville, and recently in The Scarlet Gospels. I just kept thinking it was Dr Sam Beckett. That was That's just me. <laughs> yes, of course, he is played by, by Scott Bakula. But it was around the same time as um, Quantum Leap, so there's oh. a very, very definitely that look. Similar to Nightbreed, this film doesn't hold back in its representation of weirdness, magic and monsters and so on. And we open up with the car driving through the desert, which I thought at first was Joshua Tree, but turns out to be the Mojave Desert. And it's uh, heading towards this cult base out in the desert. And yeah, there's this guy and he's got a ball of fire that he's dancing around in his hand. And you're kind of wondering, is he just sort of tricking people? No, no, he is a wizard. He has got a ball of fire. <laughs> and he's got a whole bunch of cultists at his yeah. beck and call. And the fire told him to purify the world because he is the Puritan. The man we come to know as Nix. 
And the people barreling through the desert to confront Nix are actually former members of his cult who have sort of seen through his bullshit, or at least come to realise just how dangerous he is. Mm -hmm. This is the end of a Call of Cthulhu scenario. These guys have tooled up with shotguns <laughs> and, and so forth, and they're going in to rescue a girl that Nix has taken hostage. Yeah, they do make the line uh, that Nix has, this time he's gone too far. And so, yeah, they turn up, they fight their way through a bunch of cultists, go up, confront Nix, and then it all turns to shit. Well, Nix does grab one of them, and I'm kind of wondering what's going to happen here. And this is Swan, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. He grabs the guy and gives him Brainiac fingers. Basically, just pushes his fingers into the guy's skull. Not in a kind of like crushing the guy's skull way, but just in a kind of magic kind of fingers into the brain way, which sends this guy totally haywire and he starts seeing people as they really are in air commas and their faces pulling off like some kind of bad acid trip. See, seeing flesh through a god's eyes. Yeah, I mean, this made me think that there was almost a Lovecraftian, or at least an almost Ramsey Campbell connection here, that, you know, is, yeah, is Nick some kind of avatar or priest of Daloth, mm -hmm. that, mm. you know, he's there rending the veils. You know, he certainly rends the veils. Mm. The young girl picks up a gun and puts a few bullets into Nick's head. He falls down, but he's uh, possessed by some kind of demon. So, and this was a really cool bit, I thought, when they bind him. It's like, yes. bind him, and they get all these metal <laughs> bits of mask out. Well, they don't just nail it in onto his head. They, no, they, they have they these use magic, magic screws. To, yeah. Well, they, they put a bit of blood on the screws and the screws just screw themselves into uh, Nix's skull. Yeah, these yeah. are more than self-tapping screws. These are self-screwing <laughs> screws. They just, uh, yeah. That'd make home decorating so much quicker if we had that. Yeah, but you would have to cut your fingers every time you want to put one in. To, to, oh. be, to be fair, almost every time I do DIY, I end up cutting my fingers. <laughs> But bizarrely, that was one of the things I picked up on IMDb, that, that um, the fact that Swan bit into his own thumb to get the blood was one of the scenes that was originally cut to get an R rating. That seems so tame now. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the fact that this is a director's cut. One of the reasons why this cut exists is that it restores a lot of the footage that was cut by the MPAA in order to get an R rating in the US. The mask itself, it seems to be a very deliberate lift or tribute or homage or whatever to Mario Bava's Black Sunday, with Barbara Steele as, as this uh, witch who ends up kind of coming back from the dead later. But in the beginning of the film, she is bound in exactly the same way, with this iron mask being bound onto her face to contain her powers. Mm -hmm. And it is you know, almost exactly the same scene. They then make reference to, now that he's bound, to burying Nyx somewhere really deep. Call of Cthulhu investigators... You got a body of some. What? What would you do, Matt? Burn it. You'd burn it. <laughs> you'd burn it. You'd dismember it. Lace the ground with salt. You'd. I don't know. You'd grind it up. You'd. You'd do everything, wouldn't you? Would you no. the time? Well, yeah. exactly. What are they doing? They. They. They bound it. Then they bury it. Now, at no point was I thinking this guy's going to come back. <laughs> no spoilers here, but you know he does come back. <laughs> Nick's taken care of, we now jump forward 13 years to 1995. And across the country to New York. And this is when we first meet Harry Damore, a private investigator based in New York, who has just come off a case that involved an exorcism, which immediately tells you that he's not your average private eye. He fills most of the, the typical kind of gumshoe tropes, really. Yeah, yeah, see, he seems to be a fairly kind of rumpled, cynical, bitter character who's just seen too much. He's not on one last job, but he almost could be. <laughs> yeah. When his boss or whatever comes in and gives him a job over in LA. So again, yeah. he's, he's setting up to be another typical Cthulhu investigator. 
Yeah, here's your mission. <laughs> but but this time it's something nice and simple. Get away from all that supernatural nastiness of the exorcism. And it's just a simple fraud case. Cut to LA, massive palm trees, sunshine. The no guy room. that he's watching, you know, he's got, he's got a couple of women and they're having a pool party. And then he, he randomly decides, I'm going to go and get my palm red. Yeah, what, the hell? what is going on there? <laughs> so he follows him to the palm reader. And is immediately jumped by this rather sinister and inhumanly strong skinhead with foul teeth. Who he throws out of a window after a, a brief conflict. <laughs> As you do. Yeah. He smashes into the ground and then you come down and he's disappeared. But in between, Damore has found the fortune teller actually sitting in his parlour with lots of knives sticking in him. Yeah, lots but he doesn't die until he's, you know, delivered his uh, final lines. Telling Damore what's going on. Yeah, you'd have just yeah. shot him there and then, Matt. Well, yeah, but... <laughs> You're obviously a bad guy. Someone's taking the time and effort to do this. Put you out of your misery. But yes, he is warning about Nix and the Puritan coming back. One thing that Damore is unaware of at this time is the fortune teller was, in fact, one of Swan's cohort when they went and, and took care of Nix in the desert 13 years ago. Yeah, basically all these guys that hunted Nix down those years ago have, have got a curse on them. They're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> We now renew our acquaintance with Swan. Thirteen years on, he's become quite a successful stage magician. Following the, uh, the effect of Nix's brain fingers, Swan is able to do magic, which he disguises as illusions. And there's a lot of talk about how illusions are just illusions, they're not real magic, but he can do real magic, so he disguises it. In fact, Valentin, yeah, Swan's assistant, actually goes out of his way the first time he meets Damore to say, you know, Swan isn't a real magician, he's an illusionist, honest. You know, why would I even be saying this, but he's not a real magician? <laughs> yes. Swan has learnt about Quaid's death, is a bit shaken up by it because he realises what this probably means. And he's married to a, a young woman by the name of Dorothea who suggests, having seen the article in the newspaper and seeing about Damore's involvement in there, that they hire Damore to try to find out exactly what happened to Quaid. Again, it's that one last job. I'm just about to head back on the plane to New York and uh, $10,000 a day... Uh... And why don't you come along and see my husband's latest illusion on the stage? Yeah. So there they are, watching the illusion. And there's this strange contraption with lots of uh, broadswords hanging above Swan as he rotates on a spinning disc. And the blades drop, and he just frees an arm. And then the blades drop, and he just frees a leg. And then the blades drop into his leg. And then <laughs> another one drops into his arm. And the audience is starting to get a little worried here. And they just keep dropping into him. <laughs> is it a trick? Somewhat reminiscent of the Ten of Swords tarot card, the last card that hadn't turned over on Very the much. fortune teller's table, yeah. even though he had scalpels pushed through his neck. Swan is lying there full of swords. And there we leave it. Swan, pierced by many swords, dead. Some echoing theme here. Yeah. <laughs> One of the main characters dead partway through the film. Spoiler alert. And now the spoiler-tastic review of Nightbreed. Well, moving back to our spoiler-heavy discussion of Nightbreed now. Who's not dead? 
Oh, he's not dead. You're kidding. <laughs> well, no, well, he, he, he is dead, he actually, because can't, they can't find a pulse later on. Oh, he yeah, just... the doctor checks, doesn't he? He's yeah. like, holy shit, man, what's going on here? There's, there's <laughs> yeah. no pulse. Doesn't well, stop but... him getting up and moving around, though. With Boone dead, his girlfriend, Laurie, decides to track down where he was killed and, and what quite what happened there at this strange place called Midian. So she heads out there and stops at a roadhouse, uh, strikes up a friendship with a woman by the name of Cheryl Ann. We'll call her yeah. red shirt. <laughs> yeah. Basically, at this stage, I mean, it's pretty transparent that Barker just needed someone to get killed in a couple of scenes' time and didn't want to get rid of any of the main characters at this stage. So it's, it's sort of, yeah, moving to town. Oh, yeah, you'll do your victim number one. Come with me. <laughs> we'll give you a little bit of a backstory, tie you in with a particular, uh, with a particular character, and then... Oh, revelation stab! In the meantime, Laurie has entered Midian and finds this strange little creature, almost like a golem-like figure, kind of crawling around the ground. One of the mausoleum doors opens up and there's this strange fae figure of a woman yeah. and she asks uh, Laurie to, to bring this, this golem-like creature to her. Yeah, and Laurie's very hesitant at first, but eventually comes Yeah, to right! Yeah. <laughs> no shit, Sherlock! Yeah, because yeah. this thing does... I mean, well, this thing doesn't actually look that threatening. I mean, it's... it's no, but it's a woman in a mausoleum <laughs> yeah. asking, you know, yeah. bring that <laughs> thing out of the sunlight. It's not safe over there. <laughs> but yeah, Laurie eventually does that, takes the, the little creature over into the shadows, where it metamorphoses into a young girl. The figure in the shadows, the girl's mother, thanks her profusely. Laurie then starts asking about Boone, and the woman, Rachel, whose daughter uh, she just rescued, does some introductions, you know, introduces her to, you know, the movers and shakers of Midian, who then tell her to bugger off. <laughs> Pretty much, hey, you're immortal. You stay above ground. What stays below remains below. And what's going on below? Boone's gone down underground. He's had a little acceptance ceremony. Yeah, an initiation, right, yeah. Complete with our comic relief, striking a match halfway through and lighting up a fag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's kind of accepted into the, the cult of monsters, really. Yeah, the tribes yeah. of the moon welcome you. And they, they have lots of laws. And, and in true fairy tale fashion, Boone breaks all of these within the next half hour. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I was going to say, they might as well just call it the prime directive. Yeah. <laughs> or just a checklist. Yeah. <laughs> But Boone's not happy with all this, and he just sort of heads off underground, doesn't he? And goes down to meet Baphomet. The Nightbreed, uh, yeah, the tribes of the moon, these monstrous races, have their own sort of god who lives under the ground with them in Midian, who is this sort of ancient uh, one of the Nightbreed. Uh, he l exists as a sort of living statue, and his blood has transformative properties, and he looks really fucking cool. Laurie gets chased out of Midian. Yeah. Uh, she goes outside and finds her disposable victim is now a... Been victim. disposed of. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is, is now nailed to a tree with a bloody knife. And there is the figure in the mask, the one who's been doing all these murders, the one who we've been told is Boone. The button eyes and the zip mouth. Yeah, only it's not Boone. Who is it, Scott? I can't remember. Miss <laughs> <laughs> David Cronenberg. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> No, no, it, it is it is Dr. Decker himself under the mask. He takes the mask off. And it's old man Cronenberg. We've got away for it, too. It weren't for you pesky kids. It weren't for you pesky nightbreed. So Decker uses Laurie as bait to try to draw Boone out because he's interested in learning more about the nightbreed. Now, we've touched upon the idea before that, you know, Decker liked killing families. This is sort of what attracts him to the Nightbreed of Midian, the fact that they are all one big family, and this is sort of the ultimate family he can take out. The bait works 
and Boone ends up coming above ground, rescues Laurie from Decker. There's a bit of confusion, Decker escapes. Boone and Laurie go back down uh, under Midian, where Laurie learns a little bit more about the nature of the Nightbreed, learns that they're basically just different species, you know, almost different types of human, or at least different offshoots of, mm -hmm. of uh, perhaps the human race. There's that wonderful montage sequence, almost the Inquisition landscape mm. um, of all the monsters getting their heads cut off or being subject to this purge. Yeah, and that's the big thing, that the Nightbreed you know, have pretty much ended up being this small colony under Midian because they've just been hunted to near extinction by humanity. For their part in all this you know, nastiness and confusion so far, Laurie and now Boone are once again kicked out of Midian. And so they go off to a hotel. Things go a bit wrong because Decker turns up again and basically massacres everyone in the hotel. Boone discovers some of the dead bodies. The scent of blood sends him into a bit of a monstrous fit. He transforms, starts licking up blood, is covered in it. And that, of course, is when the police turn up. Always on cue. Always at the wrong minute. Boone ends up being thrown in a cell. The person in the next cell is a rather drunken priest by the name of Ashbury, who's been locked up for being drunk and disorderly. Decker manages to stir up the local police chief uh, and, and the police force into forming this posse, and they get a bunch of uh, the locals as well, and they go off to Midian. Yeah, the, the police almost seem to be the local survivalist uh, <laughs> wannabes, don't they? Yeah, oh, they really do, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, 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 uh, this is, I think, just in the director's cut, but that guy who's just showing off all the weapons in this <laughs> this almost sexual fashion when it <laughs> when he starts licking the garrote it's just <laughs> fucked up <laughs> yeah I, this is possibly the most heavy-handed bit of the film uh i you know i i understand that you know barker was trying to show the worst elements of humanity coming out here and and so on, but but dear God, this is as subtle as a hammer to the face. Yeah, he's mm. trying to give us something to contrast with these rather benevolent monsters that he's uh, showing uh, in, in in Midian. <laughs> these benevolent monsters who have tried to eat a couple of the characters, or you know, yeah, but they, you know, <laughs> the, the monsters are cast in the in a good light here, aren't they? Very much so. Just, just in comparison. I mean, one of the things I actually like about this film is that the monsters are monsters. They're not just misunderstood. They are monsters. They're just not as monstrous as the people. Yeah. yeah. The, the scene was specifically where they're getting all the guns and the armour and they're kind of rounding up that posse kind of strikes me as a somewhere cross between Rambo and Night of the Living Dead. The posse turn up at Midian and just go in all guns blazing, really, and they're blasting away the, the Nightbreed. Laying explosives, yeah, the whole yeah, works. Yeah, tripwires, everything. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty much a massacre until the Nightbreed call upon the deep-trapped evil things that they have down below known as the berserkers who they you know why they didn't release those a bit sooner i don't know <laughs> because but, they're scared of them as well yeah, yeah. It's Boone, boone's bright idea after the night just sprung him from the local uh, the local jail and taken him back because oh you've survived to talk to baphomet you must be important and it's his idea to let them uh, let them go above ground yeah they they send uh Lylesburg, their leader down there to let them out but he gets killed in the process so hey, Boone, Boone has to do it <laughs> Yeah, actually, I mean, you talk about you know, the Moses connection, that hey, Moses. Well, you know, that, that's where the name Midian comes into this as well, because that's where you know, uh, Moses spent his, his, what was it, 40 years or whatever in the Old Testament. Now, we have, we have a lot of bloodshed from this point onwards. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they, this is a big battle scene that's going on. And uh, Decker wandering amongst the whole thing, uh, gleefully killing everything he can. Yeah. 
including our comic relief bastard. But of course, once the berserkers come out, that turns the tide. And you know, the humans suddenly find themselves on the back foot, no matter how many big guns they've got. In amongst all this, you've got Ashbury, the priest, wandering around as well, trying to halt the attack, spare the women and children and so on. And you know, he's obviously very much turned against the human intruders. He goes down to the temple, meets Baphomet down there. Um, and you know, he, he seems to be very sympathetic to all the Nightbreed. And then there's an accident and he gets splashed with Baphomet's blood and burnt and transformed as a result. And this you know, is the real turning point for him. Ultimately, Laurie and Boone escape together, almost like running off into the sunset together. Uh, um, but, but, not, but not before Boone has his last encounter with Baphomet, where Baphomet basically charges him with, you know, sort of said, you know, you, you've brought all this destruction down upon us, it's now your responsibility to make sure the Nightbreed uh, survive, and gives him the new name of Cabal. Mm -hmm. And the fact that his coming was foretold, because he's in the uh, scriptures in the, well, the one of the walls of the tunnels above. Yeah, and some of the murals that we saw right at the beginning. Yeah. And, you know... Boone's going to go off and, and lead the Nightbreed and he's telling Laurie, you know, you've got to go back to, to human society and, you know, goodbye. But then she stabs herself, kills herself, hoping that Boone can save her and turn her into one of the Nightbreed in a very kind of vampire type way, which sure enough, he does. We get a moment when, oh my God, she's dead. Oh no, she isn't. <laughs> And then we cut very briefly back down to the ruins of Midian where uh, the police captains uh, wandering around bumps into Ashbury and the two seem to be natural allies because Ashbury has now turned against the Nightbreed for what they've done to him. But of course Ashbury being a bit unhinged at this point just kills the police captain anyway and then swears vengeance against the Nightbreed. Now this is one of the big differences between the director's cut and the original version. In the director's cut that's pretty much where things end with Ashbury. Uh, but in the original cut of the film he then resurrects Decker as well, brings him back from the dead as this new tool, this monstrous new thing to use mm -hmm. against the Nightbreed. Yeah, it felt to me like there was quite a lot of bits in this film that were bits from the book that made sense to the author and the director and the people mm -hmm. making the film and they put them into the film, but really, to somebody just watching the film, they didn't really need to be there. Um, and this whole thing with Ashbury, yeah, it's set up as a sequel, but without that, it's kind of like, that seemed a bit of a... Um, a well, not a, Yeah, seemed a bit superfluous. Yeah, I mean, we end on a point that's, that does really seem to be setting up the sequel, which is the Nightbreed gathered in a barn waiting for Gabal mm -hmm. uh, to turn up and lead them to the Promised Land or whatever, but certainly, you know, ensure their survival from that point onwards. It's also got lots of cool monsters in it. I mean, we haven't really touched on the fact that the monster designs in this, the makeup designs and so on, are really ever so cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's lots of different types. There, there's... Porcupine I, girl's great. Oh, isn't she just? <laughs> but there's that scene where Laurie is wandering through Midian and just basically seeing all the creatures that live there in this you know huge underground world that is filled with rope bridges and you know fires and and these little caves and and cubby holes where things live. <laughs> yeah, it's a fantastic scene. That is, I mean, just the variety of stuff that you see, and it's just going on in the background as she's kind of passing through it. Occasionally, they make a sort of half-hearted grab towards her, but the, most of them. They're involved in other things mm. while she's walking by, you know, they're just doing weird stuff. Um, and 
you know, they're not that interested in her, which is kind of cool. <laughs> but my favourite moment from all that is one of the monsters looking out, sort of sniffing the air as, as she goes past, going, there goes the neighbourhood. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, that, that's one monster I just can't understand how he survived. It's like, oh, I'll give you two reasons why, uh, why, I should, uh, why I should put my hands down. And these things snake out of his belly and then very prolonged go round yeah, his what neck. The hell? And then lean forward and finally uh, <laughs> grab the guy's eyes out. I would have pumped every fucking bullet in my gun into the guy's face by the time that those things had even <laughs> come out was, of his gut. That was not an efficient kind of monster thing. Yeah, no. That was just weird. <laughs> but I think there's some interesting things going on in Nightbreed. I mean, it's not a very subtle film. But, you know, it's, it's very heavy with allegory. I mean, it's very much... I mean, if you think about all the villains in this film, I mean, you've got the authority figure of the psychiatrist who's, you know, manipulating uh, Boone. You've got the police, the priest and so on. And it's all, you know, very much authority, moral type figures uh, who seem to be objecting very much to everything that these people are, Boone in particular is. Uh, and hating him for, you know, just his very nature. And I, I don't know, I, I find myself wondering how much of this comes out of the fact that, you know, Clive Barker, you know, throughout the 1980s was very much out as a gay man. And, you know, the, the 80s were a fairly homophobic time with the rise of, of AIDS. Um, you know, he, he's, he's old enough that he, you know, he would have come of age at a time when, um, you know, gay sex was actually, you know, or at least sex between men was illegal in the UK. You could be put in prison for it. And I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of this film just feels like, you know, allegory for that. You see, I escaped from the grave, so I have to give something to the grave in return. Yes. Show us. And moving on to our spoiler-laden discussion of Lord of Illusions. Damore, being a good kind of noirish private eye, he immediately suspects that there's something more to this accident than uh, than meets, the, meets the, eye. the eye. He heads yeah. back backstage to see what the hell is going mm. on under mm. the stage, in fact. Yeah. yeah, and there he encounters not only the skinhead with the, the foul teeth, but also a character we've seen before um, in the very start, Butterfield, who's basically Nix's right-hand man, thug, whatever. Uh, a generally nasty piece of work. But a man that's driven, because he says in a, in a scene before that that he's he's driven to get Nix back to confirm, um, to make good on his promise that death itself is an illusion. He's definitely Nix's uh, right-hand man. And so there's a bit of a fight, uh, things get nasty, and uh, Damore ends up shoving the skinhead onto one of the props uh, and basically running this spike through him. Uh, the skinhead bleeds out and Butterfield legs it. Mm -hmm. There's almost a Terminator-esque kind of fashion about that, that the skinhead just keeps coming! Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, whatever he is, he's, he's definitely unnatural. Mm. Damore tracks down one of Swan's gang, uh, who's in a, what, a psychiatric hospital? Yes. And he chats to her, and as he's uh, going along talking to her, there's uh, some digging going on, some workmen are digging, and she keeps kind of glancing at this, and it's obviously reminding her of Nick's being buried somewhere. And uh, this, this causes her to flip out. And in a, in a great uh, scene of low-budget horror, she runs off round a corner of a building. <laughs> we hear the screeches of a brake, 
cutscene to her lying in under a stationary car, <laughs> having been knocked down and gruesomely killed, with no expense of any special effects whatsoever. But before then, I mean, she's dropped a few dire warnings about Nick's coming back and the Puritan and stuff like that. That they are one and the same as well. Yes. Damore and his investigations goes off to a club called the Magic Castle, where a lot of stage magicians hang out, to try to learn a bit more about Swan and, and his background and so on. In the process, manages to piss off most of the magicians there, uh, in friend, uh, befriends a guy uh, by the name of Danny Inferno, who basically helps him break into a secret room there, which has got lots of secret tricks in it. And there he discovers some old files, which indicate the truth that, you know, Swan, both Swan and Nick's actually knew some real magic. Yeah, these weren't, this wasn't trickery. This, well, what's the line the guy uses? There's a fine line between divinity and trickery. Damore keeps digging and goes to Swan's wife to learn more about Nick's and basically the background of what, what's going on. And in the process, the inevitable sex scene happens in the film where then she admits, oh yeah, I was the one that shot Nick's. She, revelations, she's the girl from the beginning of the film. And, um, and yeah, she married Swan, because, not because she loved him or anything like that, but because she was grateful that he saved her life. Yeah, it's one hell of a way to say thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, of course, Valentin, though, the manservant, thinks this is a little bit off of the private investigator doing this. So, calls Swan. Guess what? He's not dead. Yeah, Swan's yeah. not dead, folks. Those swords that <laughs> yeah. killed him, they didn't really kill him. Because <laughs> death is an illusion. Yeah. And he turns up in, again, this is where you can always use the Dale-Off parallel of was like two-dimensional images that almost fold in amongst themselves. And a lot of inspiration I've drawn him from here from a particular monster in the scenario. <laughs> <laughs> um, decides to come in and give Damore a scare. Doesn't quite work. He runs into the um, the room where the body's lying in state, only to rip it open. Oh, and it's, it's a waxwork dummy. And Damore tracks down Swan in this old sort of uh, uh, falling down building. And... He, he finds him, and then suddenly it's like there's this wrecked car that Swan is levitating above Damore's head. I think it's the same uh, the same car used at the beginning of the film. I think, and it, the car is probably what about six foot above Damore's head, easily. <laughs> and then Swan drops the car on Damore and still misses. He misses. <laughs> what does it do? It kind of drops in slow motion or something. He, he drops his he hands has... first, and then Demore goes, "Oh, I guess that means the car's going to drop. Mm, I better well, move out the way. I'm going to roll out the way of this. <laughs> yeah. Dodge falling car from six foot above your head. Yeah. Good yeah, trick. That was... <laughs> that was that magic. <laughs> but but anyway, once they put their differences aside. Uh, Damore manages to convince Swan that they you know, they really need to team up and go off and take care of Nick's once and for all. But it's all too late, because the, the guy with one eye has managed to quite literally twist someone's arm uh, <laughs> to get him to uh, fess up to, uh, to, to where this uh, Nick, Nick's is hidden out in the desert. Once again, we, we watched, um, so if you've ever watched Supernatural, the two boys on that, they're forever digging holes in the ground. <laughs> if you've ever dug a hole in the ground, you'll know how damn difficult it is. How grave diggers do it, I don't know. But, well, obviously they have a spade and they dig a hole. They it's probably, really hard. Well, the, the, these days they use mechanical diggers. There you go. They must have used a JCB to make the hole that size. <laughs> and this guy's out in the desert in the middle of the night. He's dug a bloody massive hole. He has, It's about yeah. ten foot across and six foot deep. Mm. And he still can't find the body. <laughs> but there it is, just a hand poking out. Butterfield drags Nick's out, removes the iron mask, and Nick's wakes up. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good scene, actually, when Nick's wakes up. I thought it was pretty cool when they removed the mask. Yeah, the, the resurrection, kind of yeah. Reanimating uh, resurrection effects. 
Then we get a scene, uh, a few scenes, where various people that we've kind of seen earlier but not seen too much of, the old cultists who've got families and all sorts of things now, it's like the, the switch goes off in their head and they just murder their families, kill everybody they know, <laughs> and head off back to the cult base in the desert. Well, they, they all receive a letter saying it's homecoming time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that is just a great scene with that montage of just these ordinary domestic scenes and these bodies just sitting there. Uh, the, the bit that makes me chuckle every time I've seen it is the soundtrack in the background. I mean, some of that old-time religion. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, as you say, it's a big homecoming, and Nyx is there with all his, his followers, and um, he's got Dorothea, Swan's wife, and he opens up a massive hole in the ground, which apparently he can just, you know, he could let go of her and drop her at any time, and he's, he's sort of saying that he needs to make a, a payment for his having been brought back from the dead, and the, and all his cultists are like, yeah, right on, yeah, let's have a let's have a sacrifice. What they don't realise, they're the sacrifice. Yeah, I mean, he's already screwed around with them enough at this stage. He's had them crawling over broken glass, uh, cutting all their hair off in such a jagged way that they cut bits of their scalp off as well. And as if all this weren't bad enough, you know, for the pavement, he conjures up a, a storm indoors. Water pours down from clouds oh. from the ceiling. The ground below turns to mud and it just swallows all these poor cultists up. Then we have Dumore, our private eye, with Swan, the uh, the magician, and the one-eyed guy, uh, in a kind of a, a three-way kind of tussle in the house. And it, it's, it's kind of like he's got the one-eyed guy with the gun trained on him, but then he leaves him with Swan and, and goes off. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> that, that, job that was what? really yeah. half-arsed. So they end up having a fight as well. And yeah, it's all just pretty chaotic for a little while. Yeah, I mean, this whole scene from here on is just one big clusterfuck, isn't it? Mm -hmm. it, is, it is pretty much letting the Cthulhu investigators loose in the base at the end. <laughs> um, history almost ends up repeating itself in the fact, again, it's a clusterfuck running around the cultist base. But then Dorothea shooting Nyx again. And finally, um, but, but, shoot... but this time shooting him in the face. Oh yeah, shooting him in the face in in a scene very much reminiscent of, re, um, of From Beyond, where we have a rogue pineal gland that decides <laughs> to occasionally poke out through Nix's forehead. Yeah, I thought they were going to make more of that. That was pretty strange. But even despite being shot in the forehead, Nix still refuses to die. First of all, he does his rending the veil bit again. He does it on Demore, uh, and Demore freaks out again as he, he starts seeing the the flesh and the filth and so on that lies beneath the human form. But this time, Dorothea kind of talks him back around. As all this is happening, I mean, Nix is transforming into something else. Mm. Yeah, he's saying that he wants to finally unite with Swan. That the two of them were the ones that were destined to kill the world and then ultimately kill each other, so that there'd be no one left and that he's trying to um, almost give his exposition of, yes, I am the end of everything. Swan, despite the fact that he has been beaten to shit, he's dying, uh, once again uses his, his magic uh, to try to help Demore take Nyx down, tosses him down to this pit where Nyx falls down there, hits lava, catches fire. If I had one problem with the film, I think it's this scene, the very end of the film, um, in which it seems remarkably quick, almost anticlimactic in a fashion. Um, you've got Damore, um, Swan's wife, legging it out of the building, while you have this broken, twisted remains of Swan lying in a corner. 
um, this almighty wind blo um, blowing and almost rending all the flesh off his body until there's nothing left but a skeleton. Nix is rushing up from the lava, trying to go and trying to get back out of the hole. A swan explodes and the hole just seals up. It, it, I don't know. It just doesn't really work for me that much. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I agree. And then Dorothy and Damore flee, run off into the sunset together. Yeah, happy ending. Yeah, with a little voiceover of flesh is a trap and magic sets us free. Yeah, and this is fundamentally a film about flesh and purification. I mean, you've got Nix's very twisted worldview of, of flesh being corrupt when he's teaching people how to see things through the eyes of a god. You know, you, you, see, they, you see everyone around you as filth, as corrupt, etc. And, you know, Nix as the Puritan is all about purifying the world, purifying it through fire, clearing all this filth away. It's a nice spin on a fairly kind of bland bad guy motive. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to end the world. Uh, at least a reasoning behind this and that he's doing it out of disgust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and partly the fire told him and so on that he claims it's almost his birthright or he's the reason why he was born, that he was born to murder the world. Fairly grandiose, grandstanding, monologuing statements that easily I would have shot the guy a long time before <laughs> he would have had a chance. But for what is fundamentally a human antagonist, I mean, Nix is really quite scary. I mean, there's the whole almost unkillable aspect to him. There's the magical side and so on. And, you know, the, this, this ability he has to get inside people's heads to change their worldview. I, I, I think he's... I, this is something Barker, I think, does quite well. Having these antagonists or characters, these, these transformed humans who are still sort of almost recognisably human at their core, but are in the process of becoming something else. I mean, the, the, the Cenobites in Hellraiser are a lot like mm. this as well. Mm. And, and the character of Mamoulian in, in the Damnation game, uh, this uh, kind of immortal character in there, is a, is a bit reminiscent too. They're almost inhuman, in Scott. <laughs> yes. <laughs> One thing I, I wanted to get the two of your, your opinion on, though. I mean, one thing that sort of bothered me a bit about this film afterwards was what the point of having Harry Damore in it was because he almost seemed extraneous I mean yeah I know he goes in he gets the girl he you know helps solve a lot of these problems but you know this is fundamentally a film about the unfinished business from the past coming back and he is an external participant to all that. I mean, everyone else who was involved in it you know, has, has become involved to some extent or another in the modern-day bit. You know, if you wanted to have a protagonist in this and you still wanted to have all the stuff with Swan faking his own death and so on, why wouldn't Dorothea be the protagonist? I, I personally, because I thought about the role that Damore fulfills and what he actually physically does in the film is that he is a detective. He is the gumshoe that wanders around doing the investigation. Having cultist or, as you've described, him, like random haberdasher goes out and tries to save the world um, seems a transformation that, in the course of the film, really would be a bit jarring to see someone that's been formerly been a cultist have a nice quiet life and then suddenly turns into an investigator. Well, it just it's jarring. I think he's us. We're we're he's the vehicle that delivers the story and Maybe. he's the one we associate with. Mm. I mean, all the others kind of play roles in the story, but he's the the kind of overarching 
um, device through which the story is delivered. Yeah, but but fundamentally, it's not his story. I mean, you know, it becomes it, but he he is external to the history that's come from all this. And I don't know, that made it less satisfying for me than if it was one of Swan's original posse going back and sorting out, you know, what they left undone. Or if you think of it in what we've already discussed about Nightbreed, set up for a sequel, another Harry Damore adventure. Mm. Yeah, but I, I, and, and I agree, that's exactly what it feels like. It's establishing this character. But in terms of this particular story, to me, it feels gratuitous. I've never really seen it like that, to be honest. I thought it's, it was having a detective doing a lot of investigating makes a re- relative sense in the course of the film. And now we look at what we can steal from these films in gaming. Well, there's all sorts of stuff we can take from these films for gaming. Starting with Nightbreed, the really obvious one is the fact that in this, the monsters are the protagonists. And if we're thinking about Call of Cthulhu in particular, I mean, I know monsters as protagonists has been done to death or undeath or whatever by White Wolf. <laughs> but if we're thinking of this in terms of Lovecraftian gaming, that's not something that happens very often. Certainly not. You've explored some of this in your Time and Tide Innsmouth adventures, Scott, particularly. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've played a, a Deep One hybrid in one of those games. You know, that was a lot of fun. And there was a kind of a sympathy for the, for the Deep Ones that we see for the monsters in Nightbreed, a similar kind of feel, I think. Oh, absolutely. And Nightbreed was a huge influence on those scenarios. It's hard to do that with the monsters and have it feel like a horror game rather than a fantasy game, I think. Barker has always occupied that kind of odd space between fantasy and horror. When I say fantasy, I don't mean like Tolkien and elves and dwarves. Nightbreed and Cabal and so on. You've got these monsters as protagonists, these inhuman uh, entities that are very sympathetic, very human characters. And that is very much a sort of fantasy trope, not a horror one. They do... Both, or in fact, any of the Barker's works that I've read have a degree of the fantastic in them. Mm. That they are full of almost like a magical quality or some, I don't know, it's it's hard to put your finger on it really. But it's definitely, it's, it's a style that's very much his. I mean, I've certainly you know run a scenario at some stage as well where uh, Lovecrafting ghouls were the protagonists mm. and had quite a lot of fun with mm. that. I was just thinking the fact that you've got it set under a graveyard makes you think you could actually do a ghoul adventure where you chart that progress of an investigator turns into a ghoul, becomes part of ghoul society, realises they've got their own problems, the intricacies of their own ways of life and so on. Actually, I'd rather like to write that down. I I, I already have. This is is Pickman's model, really, where Pickman starts off as a human character and slowly transforms... And, you know, we see him in a later story, Dream Quest, where he's become a ghoul and he's in ghoul society. Yeah, the only writer I can think of who's done this to quite that extent before, another one of my favourites was Arch Edmund Hayes. And in books like The Monster Club and other collections of his, he did very, very similar things. So White Wolf tries to do this with, you know, you play a vampire, you play a werewolf. I don't think it captures this feel, does it? It's more of a, a human society that's removed, you know, human in inverted mm-hmm. commas. They have somewhat um, changed that path more recently because the last of the new WOD games that's been released is Beast. And it very much does have, from, from what I know of it, I haven't read all of it. Um, from what I've gathered, it is a, definitely the Nightbreed, the closest game to Nightbreed ah. that I can think of. But how easy is it to play the monsters? Because, I mean, if we look at Boone in Nightbreed, he's quite human. 
Hmm. I mean, he's become a monster, but he's, he's, you know, as a character, he's still very human. Whereas some of the other monsters, you know, much less so. Yeah, so if we're going to play one of them, do we play one like Boone, which is more human? I think so. You'd, you'd start off as because it's still he, that being human is still quite fresh in his memory, and it's very much a recent change for him. But in a, in a role playing game, I think it's it's quite. You know, we have other races in uh, Dungeons and Dragons and so on. These other races in Dungeons and Dragons and so on, they're kind of analogues for humans. You know, you could be a halfling, you can be an elf, but, you know, essentially you're playing a kind of human character with human-type motivations. And pointy ears. You're not playing some really different monster mentality. No, but not all of the monsters in Nightbreed are that inhuman. I mean, you've got characters like Narcisse, who is, you know, a very identifiable type of person mm. who just happens to be a monster. You've got Rachel, the mother of the, 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 the young girl, who comes across as being very gentle and so on, and then at some point when they're breaking uh, Boone out of prison, oh, yeah. you get to see her monstrous abilities, and she's terrifying. Mm-hmm. So in a game, do we maybe give a mix of these characters to the players? And some players are playing the monsters and some players are playing the, the player characters and for some reason, you know, they're bonding together for some shared goal, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, certainly that's very much... Well, I was about to say that's very much what I've done in Time and Tide, mm. except there are no shared goals there. No, but overlapping... But, um, but uh, overlapping, overlapping yeah. story arcs, yeah. certainly, yeah. Um, I don't know, we had one episode, one episode of Time and Tide where we had a happy ending where everyone got their way. <laughs> we counted that as a win for a Dawood scenario. I still hold on to that cherished memory. <laughs> Another aspect of uh, the monsters in Nightbreed that I really liked was the fact that they, they, they represented this very kind of interesting culture that lived under the cracks of the human world that... Yeah, certainly, the you know, you've got characters like Narcisse who've you know, been very much part of the human world, and you know perhaps can sometimes interact, but mostly their own little kind of hidden subculture. It, it sort of again made me think about you know different ways in which, if we're going back to Call of Cthulhu, uh, the more human types of of uh, Lovecraftian monsters may coexist or at least live in the hidden spaces of the human world. Mm. And obviously, you know, the direct analogue with this would be ghouls in a graveyard. Yeah, I mean, you've certainly got the Deep Ones and Innsmouth and so on. The Deep Ones and the ghouls, they're bestowed with a, a human-like intelligence and human-like kind of culture in, in the fact that they, you know, they exist in, in groups and so on. And I think that's what makes them easy to write scenarios about because they are almost, you know, we, we can get closer to sort of understanding them and their motivations and so on. Trying to get your head around what Dark Young want to do is, yes. you know, it's a whole um, other ball game which makes it easier just to cast them in the role of a big bad monster. Uh, but you also have, um, in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook, for example, you've got Shoggoth Lords as well. So again, you know, it, that, that's, that's pitched as very much a sort of one-off character, but what would a, you know, perhaps a small society or community of those things look like? Would it actually be a sort of gestalt entity? You know, would, would they kind of come together and merge? Would they kind of split off and have their own separate identities? Sounded a bit like society. Yeah, I'm sort of thinking <laughs> about that. 80s film. Another cool thing that happens in Lord of Illusion that we, I really think we don't make enough of is the fact that we have that scene at the start and then it cuts 13 years later. Yes. You can set up 
a really deadly scene at the start of a story and, and give out player characters or just, just you know, maybe NPCs that the, the, the players take on for, a sh for one scene. And you can have some crazy death and mayhem and then say, okay, now it's uh, 20 years later. And then you give out the real player characters. <laughs> and maybe those characters from that first scene, you know, they, they might be some of the player characters or they might be, you know, just they might encounter those NPCs or maybe later on something they've investigated links back and they remember, you know, what happened back then. You know, there's all sorts of things you can play around with. This demonic character of Nyx is particularly interesting as well in that they can bind him but they don't seem to be able to destroy him. Yeah. So usually at the end of a, you know, the end of a scenario, we defeat the baddie and blow it up, kill it, destroy it, send it back where it came from, whatever, and that's the end of the game. But here, you know, giving them something that they can't destroy, I mean, yeah. quite how you explain that when they come up with all the ways that they can destroy something, I don't know, but... I've got one. Go on. I suddenly thought, what happens when they did finally, in inverted commas, kill him? Mm. Turned into something horrible. A bit like what happens if you kill an avatar of Neartholotep. Yeah. But fundamentally, I mean, he can be contained but not killed. I think that's more horrifying when you know the thing is still out there. And one of the things I really did like about Lord of Illusions was the cult in it. I think I've, I've touched on this in, in earlier episodes. I don't particularly like cults where, you know, it's just made up of, you know, faceless mooks in funny robes and so on. The cultists in this are mooks, but at the same time, they feel like they're made up of the kind of broken, dysfunctional human beings that I'd expect to find in a real-world cult. Mm. There are people who are seeking stuff. There are people who don't necessarily seem to be, you know, the most socially functional individuals. They, admittedly, they manage to keep up the pretense of normal lives, you know, while they're waiting for Nix to come back. But they feel like real cultists mm. to me. It's like people who are holding down a regular job through the week, and then at the weekend they take loads of drugs and go to crazy parties, but they're drugs and parties are going to this cult base and you know crawling over glass and doing crazy stuff so you, you can kind of reconcile the two they've had this period when Nix isn't there that yes as you say they've, they've led regular lives and had families and so on but as soon as he's back and sends the, the message <laughs> or whatever then you know they flip out again something I don't think you see much in Cthulhu scenarios that there are the relationships between them as well that there's that semi-implied romantic interest between at least a couple of them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, it gives them more than just two dimensions. They aren't just point and click. I think having your investigators interact with cultists who are better fleshed out, I mean, aren't just moustache-twirling villains or, or you know, mooks in funny robes, actually makes the whole thing a bit more disquieting. Because, I mean, it's not just, you know, the unnerving aspect of what led these people to become like this, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. But it's also the fact that these are people you might have to kill. And as soon as you start seeing them as people, then that suddenly makes things a bit less morally clear cut. Reminded back to that scene in Fear the Walking Dead where um, they're toying with the idea of killing the next door neighbour who's turned into a zombie. It's, no, oh, this is a person. This was your friend. Holy shit. Are you from Midian? We should take him below, Pelican. He's not Nightbreed. He's natural. No. I've killed people. I'm like you. That's why I'm here. Shut the fuck up. You're meat.
And in conclusion, what did we make of it all? So I think Lord of Illusions plays more to my like of an investigative horror film. It's got a little bit more mystique, more menace, rather than just being a monster bash. Yeah, I could definitely see that when I was watching it. I, this is the first time I'd seen that one, and uh, I was thinking, yeah, I could see this is going to be Matt's favourite <laughs> out of these two. <laughs> Me, I like monsters. <laughs> Well, you've got monsters shock. in both, Scott, pretty yeah, much, but, but, but it's more but, monsters in Nightbreed, right? Yeah, Night, Nightbreed, I just find a cooler film for the monster society in it, for the different kinds of monsters, for the cool makeup effects. On the whole, that plays much more to my interests. I like Lord of Illusions, I think it's a good film, but Nightbreed does more for me. I'd be interested to watch the, the non-director's cut of Nightbreed again and just see how that is, because I watched it early in the 90s when it came out. I remember really enjoying it and really wanting to watch it again, and watching it again, I mean, I don't think either of them aged particularly well. I think you're um, right there. There's quite a bit of poor acting, poor special effects, I, quite I, a few bits in there that you kind of think, why are they even there? There's some really dodgy writing in places as well. Yeah. I mean, some of the dialogue is really clunky in both films. Mm. Yeah, I kind of thought, yeah, I can see they've probably bought in more from the book, but maybe cut down as a shorter film, it might work better. For me, they're kind of Friday night monster films that I'd sit down with a drink, and some of the bits I did find myself looking at the clock. The one thing that I will say about both of these films, they're not perfect in execution. What I do appreciate about these, what I think makes them special films, is their ambition. These are films that very much break the mould of a lot of typical horror films. Particularly during the 80s, there were a lot of uh, formulaic films. I mean, there still are now. You know, horror is, as I've said in previous podcasts, generally a very formulaic genre. These films are not formulaic. With these and with, with Hellraiser and the other stuff that's been adapted from his stories, takes things in interesting directions. You, know, you end up seeing things on screen in horror films that most horror filmmakers would not do. I love them for that. We see a lot of remakes. I think I would like to see Nightbreed remade by Del Toro. That'd so be a perfect mash. That'd yeah. be fantastic, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah, you've just described my perfect film. The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from blasphemoustones.com. We have some more new backers on the Patreon campaign. We have a lot of new backers. Yeah, they've been coming out of the woodwork. This is really quite overwhelming and very, very generous of all of you. So much so that Scott and I will be off doing some Christmas shopping next week for some new microphones. Oh, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, think of me while I'm stuck at my desk, chained to my chair, in the holiday season. <laughs> ho, ho, fucking ho. <laughs> <laughs> this is like Santa Claus, Matt. <laughs> no, no, that's, I haven't got quite Scott's beard yet. <laughs> You're working on the beard, though. I, I blame Ollie and his suggestion. Is this Ollie because he suggested the next Patreon goal should be that we all grow beards? We can say that. It was more like Tiff hiding the razor and then going, yeah, I quite like that now. And that was so it's okay. just you letting the side down now, yeah, right? I'll, I'll, yeah why change the habits of a lifetime <laughs> but yes everyone who's, who's just backed us has got in in time to actually get the, the first issue of the Blasphemous Tome when it comes out and there is just a bit more time on that because we're, we're still working on it but um, we're getting there yeah Matt's working on the 1980s technology through which he will uh, do some with the desktop publishing I'm still trying to muscle up the strength to do the sand check to use the Curia font who are you 
uses that shit. <laughs> Remember, Matt, when we get the razor blade for you to cut up bits for the layout, don't slash your wrists with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, helping us on the way, somebody who has backed us under the name of the Magus. Uh-huh. That would be Piers. Well, I played a fun game with Piers down at Indicon earlier this year, so thank you very much, Piers. Indeed, thank you very much. I also played an Indicon game a couple of years back, Doctor Who Companions. Yes, and I've played with Piers at Concrete Cow and the Indie Games Meetup and, and fun games again, so thank you very much, Mr Magus. Thank you. And thank you very much to Jennifer Martin. Indeed, thank you very much, Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer. And thank you very much to Richie Singler. Yes, thank you, Richie. Indeed, thank you very much, Richie. And thank you very much to fellow Matthew, Matthew Robinson. Thank you, Matthew. Yes, thank you very much, Matthew. And thank you to Norman Logan. Yes, thank you, Norman. Yeah, cheers, Norman. And our next backer, someone I haven't, a good friend of mine I haven't seen for a long time, Francis Bleach. We will make it back to your place to play Arkham Horror one day. We will. It's a promise. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Francis, and cheers. Thank you. Cheers, Francis. And thanks to Roy Ananda for his generous contribution. Thank so, you very much, Roy. Yes, thank you very much, Roy. Thank you, Roy. Cheers. And last but not least, thank you to Dirk the Dice. Now, Dirk the Dice is the name of a, a fellow UK podcaster who does a rather spiffing podcast called The Grognard Files. Uh, you can find it online in all the normal places you find podcasts. And what he does is he goes back and he looks at the kind of games that at least Paul and I grew up with. He is of a similar age to us, and he goes back to those heady days of... Uh, the 1980s and, and Games Workshop publications, you know, licensed versions of RuneQuest and uh, Call of Cthulhu and Traveller now. If nothing else, you know, I mean, even if your interest is only Call of Cthulhu, go back and listen to the Call of Cthulhu episodes and then take the time out and listen to the RuneQuest and Traveller ones anyway, because they're good. <laughs> Highly recommended. So thank you very much, Dirk. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dirk. And Shane McLean has raised his pledge to $5 solely to make us sing. And, and you can do that? <laughs> he has also placed strictures upon this. He has asked us to do it in a particular style. Oh, God. Yeah, because with two middle-aged white guys and a, an almost middle-aged white guy, what other genre would you choose than hip-hop? Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> For fuck's sake. <laughs> I'm down with the kids, yo. <laughs> so... Paul is going to attempt to remix our singing into <laughs> something. He, he will either create a new musical genre or a hate crime. We're not sure which at the moment. <laughs> Yo, Shane McLean. Back, 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 back. Shane McLean. Shane McLean. McLean. Thank you, Shane. Thank, thank, thank you, bro. Yo, yo, no. With this coming out in the season of Christmas, we thought we would include a seasonal track for you at the end of the show. Are you all feeling Christmassy, guys? But night centre went crazy. No. I I don't think I've ever actually felt festive in my life, but I, I, I'll try to feel festive at the moment. Oh, have you never looked in the mirror, Scott, and thought, if only you wore one of those red hats and a red suit? <laughs> I did actually get asked at a sandwich shop the other day whether I was Santa. Ho, ho, ho.
Yeah, I couldn't think of an answer to that that wouldn't have come off as being extremely creepy. (laughs) (laughs) So I dropped Andrew Lehman of the HPLHS a line. And if you don't know about a very scary solstice and an even scarier solstice, you really should. These are Christmas carols done with a Cthulhu theme. And they are, the lyrics are incredibly well written and the performances are top-notch. Oh, yeah, they're they're just marvellous. I mean, everything the HPLHS do is professional, quality, and thoroughly entertaining, but these are probably my favourite things that they've done by far. My children grew up with me playing this at Christmas, and and occasionally they'd hear the... Well, I won't call them the real versions, (laughs) but they'd they'd hear the boring boring versions elsewhere, and they'd go... Oh, that's what you know. That that <laughs> song is based upon. You know, I had the I had the same experience with Shoggoth on the Roof that I heard that first, and it wasn't until later. later. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, kids today. <laughs> so Scott and Matt don't know this, but the track that I chose is called "We Three Friends of HPLR." Oh, oh nice. Because oh. I thought I was listening to it the other day, and I thought, what would be more appropriate? It set me to think, what would it be like if the three of us could sit down for Christmas dinner with H.P. Lovecraft? He's been dead for, what, 80-odd years? He'd oh, be come on, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> well, he would have decomposed by now. It wouldn't be that bad. No, you know, I was just thinking that'd be, that'd be fun, pulling a cracker with uh, Howard. I, I think it would lead to some interesting conversations. Yeah. So, season's greetings, and we leave you with We Three Friends of HPLR... This track comes from An Even Scarier Solstice by the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Until next time, it's ho 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 from me. A festive cheerio from me. And Merry Yithmas from me. Yeah.